cliffcentral.com. Okay. Okay. All right. All right, all right, all right. I hear Canton making some noise in the background. He's just getting onto his machine. He's just getting onto his machine. He's almost ready. He's almost ready. I love that little avatar of yours. Your little icon avatar, Garrett. Oh, you do? This one? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, I don't even know how it got on there. It's like, um, I think it's my Apple, um, you know, you, you, on your Apple ID, it gives you this avatar thing that you can make. And I don't know how it transferred to this thing, but it's somehow there. You know how sometimes you don't know, like, how technology is operating in the background, but it just does? And it just does. I no. don't know how... Years ago, when Kanaho was much smaller, he changed my um, email, my Gmail or Apple iCloud to say, Kanaho I think it must be Josh. I change it every six months. And then I just get an email from a random person saying, who's Josh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It makes you seem like you're schizophrenic. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's... Yeah. Story of my story right, of I my see, life, and I we are. Rulin uh, wants to talk about pit bulls. So, Rulin, I'm going to ask you if you can just hold that thought because we we don't have time now on the burning platform, and we do want to keep it to current affairs. Um, pit bulls can come in later, and then I'll give you the number, and we can talk about that later. But I do see you on the comments, and I will give you the number, but we can't do that today. So you'll just so, have to wait. Here's a developing story that was in the Herald, speaking of dogs, that was in the Herald, which has a little bit of a, a of a political slant because it involves Andile Lungisa mm. and two missing dogs. <laughs> Three years these dogs were missing and Andile Lungisa is, is embroiled in the scandal that's unfolding out there. And it was it, it, it was in the Herald yesterday. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I don't know if we shipped the dogs to China, but the dogs are back with their owner. A Vemarana, and I think the second one was a pit bull. Vemaranas yeah, are not inexpensive, guys. You know? I know this. Mm-hmm. But uh, Very expensive. So, Canton, how the hell are you? I'm fit and fabulous, guys. Good to see you all looking so bright and chirpy. Um, oh, Gareth, you look all huddled up almost as though it's winter. Well, I'm sorry. I'm extremely sensitive to winter. That's why I think I praise my ancestors every day for coming to a sunnier place. <laughs> Here we are. Uh-huh. All right. So let's get into some things, guys, before Rafiq joins us, because there's a lot to catch up on here. Um, just in this week, we've seen Parliament, and Pumi and I touched on this a little bit earlier. When they want to do something, when there's enough media pressure and when there's enough public pressure, like this Tabo Besta situation, can I, can I just say that it's, it's impressive to see how Parliament can quickly call a subcommittee and they can start an investigation and they can subpoena people. Visit the rather, prison. Summons them. On-site visit. Guys, guys, you've been distracted again. I mean, you know, as far as we are aware, in the entire history of these corrupt bastards running the prison system, there are three people that we know that have actually escaped. All right. Only, so yeah, there's only of. three people. Yeah, that, there's only three people that we know of during this entire time. So I would say that that's a fairly good um, success record. I think Parliament, it's the, Parliament is, is very happy to get together whenever the private sector does anything wrong. But at the oh, point oh, at which Parliament needs to turn oh. its scrutiny upon itself, and you guys made exactly the, uh, the point this morning, where the fuck is the lifestyle audit for a minister of electricity wearing a two million rand watch on his wrist? Mm-hmm. Guys, or, why are we distracted? Or, or as I said to Pumi, why is it, why is the Department of Correctional Services so defunct and so useless and so incompetent that they have to hire at great cost these private companies? And then we blame the private companies when there's no oversight. Why do, why do, why do police stations have ADT subscriptions? Right. It's, it is absolutely perverse. The lunatics are running the asylum, guys. It's been the case for a while. <clears throat> so do you have a, a, a comment on what Pumi asked me earlier? Um, because What's she's very, well, she's, she's very interested in this coalition of the corrupt versus the, uh, 
you know, the ANC, I mean, the, 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 the DA, whoever they are, the Rainbow Coalition that, um, that John Stanleyson is trying to build here. And I know we yeah. touched on this last week already, but, you know, now the Patriotic Alliance are going from this side to this side. And it all seems to me, uh, like it, it's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And, and I don't see the Patriotic Alliance's deck chair as being a particularly significant one. Remember, we touched on this when we had Helen um, in the studio with us. And, and, you know, one of the points that I raised at the time, no. we need to work towards actually formalizing coalition structures. And from my perspective, the way in which you formalize coalition structures is you have agreements that are financially binding so that if a party breaks it, there's actually a real cost on a personal basis to the individuals. And I think that that's actually something important that we need to be doing. Uh, but Gareth, I also agree with you that it's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic because again, none of them are addressing the most basic thing is how to get people out to vote for any mm-hmm. of the people who are part of the coalition of the corrupt. And if we don't get those 11 million people mobilized to the polls, it's not going to make a difference because you are going to have the ANC and the EFF still pulling more than 50% in most of the country. And Panyaza Lusufi has finally has, has finally come out and actually said that, that that's what they're working on. Oh, that racist bastard. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. I will. I, I called him out on that. Why he, 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 only, he only goes after African schools. That's why I say he's a racist bastard. Let him sue me. Okay. All right. Well, you see Canton putting it all on the block this morning. There's no, there's no quiet and considered moment with you. It's all like fire, non, nonstop. <laughs> Okay, so while we're waiting for Rafik, uh, so can I give you guys my hot take? Yes, go mm. on. Okay, so, you know, I've, I've got this whole thing of, I, I always go back and revisit my initial premise, right? Because mm-hmm. I, Gareth and Pumi, I think, you know, one of the things that we need to do as human beings is we need to actually be constantly saying, what if I was wrong in this entire process? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so for, you know, the, the longest time I've bought into the entire narrative around state capture that originated with Julie Madonsela's state of capture report. And, you know, for the past several years, we've been down this rabbit hole of the Zondo Commission, which Pumi uh, quite uh, meticulously documented for us over that entire period. And yeah. all of this culminated in the mess that resulted in the Guptas not getting extradited. And everyone was trying to point fingers at the diplomatic corps. But my fundamental point was, what if we have not actually been able to show a case against the Guptas? Hmm. And I now go back and I look through all of the reporting that we've actually had at the time. And remember, one of the most crucial things that we've got here is that the Guptas unduly profited but remember that unduly profiting in of itself is not a crime. Okay. Particularly when you have people in government who have actually facilitated those deals. It's a question of getting yeah. jobs for pals. And so we've spent these past years, you know, kind of, uh, waiting expectantly on the sidelines for something to actually drop because we've been told that these guys are corrupt bastards and that they need to go to jail. But. What at the end of the day, when presented to the judicial authorities in the UAE, it actually turns out that there's not enough to actually justify an extradition. Hmm. So that's my hot take. So so I now go back and take a look at the issues that were in place when when Jacob Zuma was, uh, was around. Okay, so did he put an end to load shedding? Yes, he did put an end to load shedding. All right, so that's the most crucial Hmm piece of the puzzle that uh, I want to highlight. So what then if the entire state of capture report and the entire judicial process out there was just simply a color revolution that was actually fostered by the people who fund uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. And I'm not going to point fingers at any particular country funding him, but it was Mm -hmm. us dollars that was found in his mattress, not rubles. All right. And We've had a country since then that has degenerated into chaos, that has been pushing fundamentally a woke agenda from the highest uh, uh, echelons of power in the country. 
and look in terms of the amount of money that's being poured down this rabbit hole of renewables and you look at mm-hmm. the people who are involved in there and guys, you know, I think this is the most fundamental level of state capture, but we've been distracted. So that's my current thought process. I'm not nailing my colors to that mast yet. I've got to do a lot more research into this, but that's where my thought process is going right now. This is, a, this is quite a, a, a bomb you're dropping. I mean, this is, this is, uh, extraordinary stuff. You're, you're questioning the state capture narrative. Ooh. Uh, well, I, well a, a narrative which I bought into, guys, and I think, um, you know, I, I think all of us bought into it. Oh, well, we were sold at Footstuarts and it seemed like a great scapegoat. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as you know, I was never a fan to begin with when Cyril was touted as the big change. Okay that we needed and the savior and the silver bullet to it all. But I do think that there are many components to what we were sold uh, with what the state capture, not just the report, but also all of the various pieces of this puzzle. Gareth, you had my very good friend uh, on one of your shows, Matangoye, who was at Prasa. And Mm -hmm. she talks about all of the malicious things that have happened there and continue to happen. Right. And those components. And we saw what happened with Denal and the falling apart of that. We saw what happened. You know, so it's not just one big thing. It's many small things. And I think one of the things that has been the greatest injustice over the past couple of years is not being able to bring not a single person to book and therefore not stopped any of the maliciousness that has been happening behind the scenes. It is not a fabrication that various components of our country, the the infrastructure is falling apart because it is not being properly maintained because somebody is eating the money. That is not a fabrication, nor is it some kind of bogeyman that was there to get rid of some person and put in other people and... It has been continuing. In fact, it's gotten worse in the time that we now have the silver bullet called That's right. Cyril Ramaphosa. That's all the proof you need is that the people who who say state capture was a thing, a Zuma thing for the Zuma years, they can't account for why it's still going on, right? Because if, if supposedly all those people, you know, the the uh, the whole coterie around Jacob Zuma were the problem. And, and again, Cyril has some tough explaining to do about how he was part of that as well. Uh, but if they were the problem and they are now out of power, how come the corruption and Persist. money laundering and fraud continues? It has gotten worse, mm. if anything. You know, so a couple of days ago, as you – I don't know if you saw the the videos of – Tabombegi's motorcade after being, you know, after his big open letter to not the secretary general, but to the now deputy president of the party and, you know, decrying the state at which the ANC is and it's how it's fallen out of lockstep with the people and no longer serves the people, yada, 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 right? So now he's, they ghosted him for three weeks and a couple of days ago, there was videos of him arriving and they did put out a statement actually from the Secretary General's office saying that they have had a very collegial and fruitful engagement with the former president with mm-hmm. regard to changing what is happening within the party. And what's the magic word? Renewal of the party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have so to, that it can't become I'm going to park all these questions for a moment and it's going to leave lots of people feeling dissatisfied because we could talk about this some more and maybe we will with our guest but I want to introduce uh, Raf Gangat who's been a guest on my show before he is a philosopher, a cricketer, a music impresario, a broadcaster, a writer and was the first ever career diplomat of color for South Africa all those years ago he served as a vice consul in America became spokesperson for the Department of Foreign Affairs He was in Karachi as our Consul General, Ambassador to the United Arab Emirates. He was also Ambassador to Palestine and lives in Israel now in Jerusalem. Uh, He is our guest this morning. And uh, Raf, it's good to see you. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. It's lovely to see all you guys. (laughs) You know, I'm 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 listening to what you guys are talking about, what's happening in my beloved country. 
And all I can say is cry the beloved country. Well, let's hope that we can get more than tears out of you this morning. <laughs> so um, you've got a few things that I think might be very interesting to South Africa um, because we are constantly told in you know, the, 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 the mainstream media about the, the situation in Israel, in Palestine, in the Middle East. Uh, we're given probably only a few versions of the story, which is always complicated because there are many. And this part of the world continues to fascinate all of us. In, in some people's minds, it's, it's now boring because it's been going on for so long. But tell us what's been going on with these protests in Israel over judicial reform. And maybe you can explain to, to people in South Africa who don't know why it is that so many people took to the streets to complain about Netanyahu's desire to reform the judiciary. Okay, we had, we had lots of issues about elections and different formations and different governments forming. What finally happened was uh, the last elections, Netanyahu formed a coalition with the extreme right. And uh, that just pissed off a lot of people on the center and so-called left. And what he intended to do was, okay, first he, the, I mean, the first thing he did was he brought in members of the extreme right. Uh, he brought in somebody like uh, Ben Gavir, who is, I mean, I don't know if there's a South African equivalent. And he promised him uh, his own little uh, militia. And then he brought in another extreme right guy called Smornich. And he pr- gave him the finance ministry and the settlements. So the majority of, I would say, people from the Tel Aviv area got upset about this. And then they went about with this whole judicial reform story, where whereby they want to reform the judiciary where the legislative sector of government would now appoint the judges. So basically, the checks and balances are gone. And that's the whole issue. It's about checks and balances. Previously in Israel, you've had a president going to prison for rape. You've had a prime minister going to prison for fraud. I mean, it's democracy in action. It works. You know, if you talk about Israel and Israel's democracy, yes, for the Israelis, it's a democracy. Talking about the West Bank and the Palestinians, that's another story. We won't get into that right now. So this, it's a democracy. It's a fact. And now this government headed by Netanyahu wants to change all this, wants to appoint judges and wants to change the whole judiciary uh, system. And that's where you got all the, in, a, in very simple terms, that's where the demonstrations are taking place and people don't want it. And he's held back. Uh, we've had the Passover holidays and all, he's promised his side, the right wing, that after the Passover holidays, we'll continue with it. Meanwhile, he's bought time. But even if he's bought time, the demonstrations are continuing. People are not going to give in. I hope that answers it. Rafik, the interesting reports that were um, floating around yesterday that shows that Mossad was actually implicated in organizing a lot of the riots that took place. I don't know if you guys have heard anything about that in uh, in that part of the world. Yeah, we, we, we've heard about that. And in fact, uh, what has been happening is that people from the side of the military, the generals, previous generals, the military, the I mean, the pilots, everybody's been involved in this. You know, and now it wasn't, uh, we're not surprised to hear that Mossad has been involved in this as well. It's in a little, I'm trying to simplify this, all right? It's seculars versus the religious right. And most of the people, the intellectuals, I mean, the people who really run the country, the intel- intellectual right, uh, are fighting the seculars. I mean, the intellectual rights are fighting the extreme left, uh, extreme right, and it's going to it's going to get worse. I, Rafik, I have yeah, I, I have I'm, a question about you, you know hmm. talking about the the people that run the country and the what we are seeing over here, just in terms of the sheer numbers of people that are involved in all of these uh, protests hmm. out in the street is how does a Netanyahu rise to the position if so many people, you know, in a democracy that works, if so many people are against what he stands for, 
How did he get the position if so many people are against him? But uh, you know, you know, know the answer yourself already, Pumi. It's a coalition of the corrupt. You know this. <laughs> you spoke about it earlier on. <laughs> no, really, because I, I mean, and this is something that particularly interests me here in South Africa, because we hear lots of people say particular things, but when it comes to showing up on the polls, people are not showing up in the way that they speak out in is that the same thing that happened okay in? Uh, in terms of the recent polls his popularity has plummeted if you have elections tomorrow he's gone but he has a coalition that's holding together for now and he's a damn good politician you know i mean he knew he's he was everything was at, on the line he held back until after the passover holidays and he's got the president involved now to form to speak to everyone and form some kind of compromise, right? He's a damn good politician and he's a survivor. Mobilizing everyone to (laughs) stay out of prison. (laughs) Exactly. And And they all, hmm, uh, Rafik, I I also noticed that, you know, whenever it hits the fan for politicians in Israel, the first thing that they do is go after Palestine. It brings them all together. Yes. And, uh, but is a, are we ever going to get to the stage where people in Israel, and look, particularly in Tel Aviv, because, uh, you know, I'd also like you to touch on, because I'm sensing that there, there's kind of uh, an urban-rural divide, so to speak, that's that's kind of happening right now with uh, Tel Aviv being strongly opposed to um, a lot of the stuff that Netanyahu has been doing, but the larger country, you know, perhaps being more conservative, taking a different view on it. But hmm. surely this thing about using um, the bombing of Palestinians as a distraction whenever there is political turmoil. How do we get to the point where eventually people say, no, we we actually want to, uh, you know, put that aside and focus on the real stuff that's going on? Because I I have a sense that it's almost at the point where you can get uh, uh, Israelis to start saying enough is enough on that. Yeah, it, it, it happened this time around. I mean, the bombing of the Palestinians happened, and everybody expected uh, there will be, a, uh, well, I mean, both factions would unite and come together. But it did happen. I mean, last Saturday we had demonstrations once more. You know, the demonstrations are continuing, bombing or no bombing. You know, they're just adamant on that side. And you're right, it's a rural versus, I mean, it's the settlers. It's a, you know, uh, Netanyahu has brought the settlers on his side, and the extreme right settlers, and it's the urban, uh, what's it, Tel Aviv crowd, and, and for the big cities as well. So uh, we have a clash. We have a big clash, but the, the Tel Aviv crowd is not giving, uh, I mean, they're not giving in. Um, in, in the interests of, of pursuing that clash further in the show, I mean, I'm a big Netanyahu fan, and uh, <laughs> I, I I know that that's not, uh, that's not going to make me, uh, the, the majority on this show, but I, I also, I can't help, but I can't help but notice the terminology difference, Raf, between the way you explain the extreme right and the so-called left. <laughs> it seems you, it seems to me that you bring your own bias to bear here. And I, I just find that, I always find that extremely interesting. Do you want to uh, explain why you think there's only a so-called left, but there's an extreme right? There is no left. I mean, if, if you, I mean, really? the left in, the left in Israel is gone, right? It's completely, I mean, merits and all the left-wing parties are gone. And, you know, if you, Netanyahu calls anyone who opposes him left. And the people who really oppose him are not really left. I mean, they're centrists or on the right, you know, and there's what nothing, we have. There's nothing left <laughs> of the left. Okay. Yeah. There's nothing left of the left. <laughs> These no ideas, not just in Israel, all over the world. He's a very clever politician. All right, I do want to hear because we seldom get an objective point of view. I know that you keep up to date with South Africa and the news that you that you obviously read about us. What do people say about South Africa in Israel? You know, we read about. You know, I mean, I get up every morning and I read the news and I get depressed every morning. You know, I mean, I, I worked in government. I was a diplomat. Like, okay, I mean, Catherine just spoke earlier about what's happening with the Guptas and, you know, all, all of that stuff. I was an ambassador in Abu Dhabi. 
I was the first South African diplomat. I set up the whole thing in Abu Dhabi. And I think, you know, immediately when I read that, and then people from South Africa called me and said, you know, what's your take on this? And I said, I smell a rat. <laughs> right? You know, let's be frank. You know, I was an ambassador there. I know how the whole system works there. The ambassador has a special relationship with the royal family. The royal family runs the show. And if you want anything done, you don't go, you don't work to the system. You go to the royal family and you talk to the right. royal family and, and the royal family just facilitates things. It's not a democracy. You know, it's run, it's a family business, you know. And when I needed anything to be done, I didn't go to this ministry or that ministry. I went right to the top and got things done. So if I was the ambassador there, I would go right to the top and say, you know, we need this to be done and it, and it gets done. You know, so I don't know what happened. And I remember at one stage, I mean, there was talk about, oh, we are, uh, there's time spent. We have to translate the Arabic and all that kind of stuff. Come on, the embassy <laughs> has a full-time translator. The embassy has a full-time translator. Yeah, they have a full-time <laughs> translator who's paid by the South African taxpayer who works full-time to do immediate <laughs> translations. Come on. You know, I right Jeez. from the beginning, I mean, this was not right. So, so, I mean, I smell a rat. I can't point a finger, you know. What I can say, I mean, this is just supposition that you know, if the Guptas come back to South Africa, they can spill the beans on a lot of people. So it's better they just stay in Dubai. And oh, the really? Catholics agrees with that. Well, they, they're not in Dubai anymore. They, they are now the citizens of, what is that? Vanuatu. Oh, Vanuatu, <laughs> yeah. All right. Lovely stuff. Which has no extradition <laughs> treaties with a South little, Africa. A little island, little island nation. Very interesting. They probably wow. own the island with all the money they left with. <clears throat> Yeah, probably. It's um, it's it's a hell of a story. So, so Raph, um, when you come to this this thing about the diplomatic uh, core and how it works, I mean, you you probably still have friends who work in, uh, what do we call the DERCO, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. I've got a friend who's there, and she tells me it's all really running very nicely. Now, Lady Pando is an excellent minister. They've got their priorities right. They're involving themselves in the conversations that will benefit South Africa from a trade point of view and from the people we align ourselves with in, uh, internationally. Was there, was there a kind of coordination in your day that you don't see there now, or am I being super critical just because this is the time that we're in and I'm paying attention? Okay, I left the diplomatic hall a long time ago, and one of the reasons I left, I mean, it's, it's a long, long story, is what really started happening was we had professionals, and then all these cadres came in, you know, with no knowledge whatsoever, you know, somebody held a gun somewhere or somebody did something, and suddenly this guy is placed above me as a boss, you know, and he doesn't know anything. And it's this whole cadre appointment that just really got me upset in, with the diplomatic uh, corps at that stage. And I had my personal issues uh, with, with a lot of people, and finally I resigned. But I've, I've followed sure. a lot uh, since then. Yes, I mean, Naledi Pandu is far better than what we've had previously, right? I mean, uh, she, she's, uh, she's really, I mean... Kwana Mashabane, yeah, she was terrific. Yeah, yeah. She, I, mean, I mean, I worked with her at one stage, you know, I, I can tell, write a book about that. But anyway, <laughs> Naledi is pretty good, and I think we, we have some... Some really good, I mean, people out there, but generally uh, the diplomatic corps that I knew, that I worked in, you know, the professionals that I worked with, I don't see that uh, anymore. You know, there's just been a general decline. Holmes, you wanted to ask something? Well, just talking about the professionalism and and then having all of these uh, cadres and the politicians in place. One of the things that I'm quite interested in as a South African now living in Israel, uh, there's, there's quite a lot of talk here at home. And Naledi is one of the big proponents of this, of, of the Palestinian, um, apartheid state and South Africa's role in, in kind of ostracizing. And I mean, they downgraded the, the, the embassy in oh. Israel. Uh, at some point and, and the tensions that that comes with, you know, sitting in Israel, looking back here at home, how is South Africa perceived politically where you are? You know, I mean, South Africa punches above its weight, you know, when it comes to this issue. 
You know, I mean, in the days of Madiba, yes, South Africa had the moral authority to, you know, punch above its weight, you know, but today it's, it, it can't. You know, and this whole thing about downgrading the embassy in Tel Aviv, I have issues with that. You know, countries uh, in the apartheid era, countries that were very anti-South Africa and pro-ANC, uh, they still maintained embassies in South Africa. They had ambassadors in South Africa, and that's the way you engage with the country. You don't walk away. You know, you don't take your ambassador out of the country. You keep your ambassador there. You engage with the country. That's what diplomacy is all about. And I think removing the ambassador, what, I mean, does it make any difference to Israel? You know, South Africa is a puny little country as far as Israel is concerned. You know, and does it, in fact, is we shooting ourselves in the foot by doing that? But by having an ambassador, if something happens, the ambassador can then go up to the highest levels, you know, uh, make his concerns, I mean, uh, uh, felt and convey the messages from one government to another government and, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. I think it was very short-sighted and very foolish. You know, that's my personal opinion. I'm no longer a diplomat. But, I, you know, <laughs> but having been a diplomat and I've seen, I mean, even, even in the worst days of apartheid, you know, countries in the forefront of the struggle outside with maintained embassies and ambassadors, and they always were there to condemn, criticize, and so forth. Mm. Yeah. Look, <laughs> did you want to say something? No, I was going to say that, you know, Rafik, you've, you've got a really unique insights and in that, you know, you've got this very strong background in diplomacy and you literally in, uh, in the heart of the conflict zone, uh, uh, so to speak. And I think that, you know, maybe if you can do just a bit of reading the tea leaves for us, you know, against the backdrop of, so, you know, we, we spoke about the protests that are happening. There's the, you know, the invasion of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was, you know, unprecedented, but, and now these airstrikes uh, against Syria. But you've also got reports coming out this week that Iran's on the brink of acquisition of nukes. You've got the Chinese now turning around and, and saying that there has to be a formalization of a two-state solution that's happening um, uh, uh, between Israel and Palestine. You've got very clear evidence that the Biden regime is very firmly against the Netanyahu regime and has been agitating stuff behind the scenes. And you've got this entire global shift that's happening in terms of people moving across onto the BRIC side. So read the tea leaves for, for, <laughs> for me, just in terms of what's happening right now, you know, particularly with the Israel-Palestine uh, situation. Is this going to be better? Is this going to be uh, um, just, you know, ramping up of the current conflict? What, what's actually, where do you see this going? You know, that's, it's a loaded question. You know, it requires, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> I, I wish I could do a TikTok, you know, less than a minute kind of thing. Okay. The question you pose, that's the next book I'm working on. I'm writing this book, Is Israel an Apartheid State? I have a unique insight. I came here as a diplomat 20 years ago, and I sat on the ring side, on the Palestinian side of the ring, and watched the conflict from the Palestinian <coughs> side. Thereafter, I got into the ring, and I became a talk show host on the only political talk show in English between the two sides. And it was a unique talk show host in, uh, in that sense that being a South African, if, we had, if I had an Israeli guest, I would sit in the studio in Jerusalem. If I had a Palestinian guest, I would sit in the studio in Ramallah. And for the first time, Israeli politicians and Palestinian politi politicians through me were being questioned by Israelis and Palestinians in a neutral language, English. That's, okay, that's the story of my book, uh, Music Has No Boundaries. Today, I sit as an objective observer right in the back, and I watch the whole thing. So I've had three different viewpoints on what's been happening here. And the point that you raise, looking at the tea leaves, you know, I, I can go back to the South African experience, you know. Apartheid ended because of the Berlin Wall coming down. You know, that's the way I see it, you know. With all, whatever was happening, when the Berlin Wall came down, it had a whole effect, and that saw the beginning of the end of Apartheid. And now you're seeing the de-dollarization process America is no longer this unipower. 
you know, you have this multipolar world emerging with Russia, China, Iran playing a role now. Saudi Arabia is now being to, you know, get out the clutch holes of the American uh, thing. And, you know, I mean, you've seen these leaks now, the Pentagon leaks, that the United Arab Emirates is closing out to Russia. You know, all these things are happening. And America is losing its grip on the whole world. And with this happening, you're going to see a domino effect everywhere in the world, including this part of the world too. I, I can't predict what's going to happen, but things are going to start happening. Does that answer your, your, your question? Well, you know, I, I think it pretty much ties in with with where my thinking has been uh, yeah, been going on this. You know, like, like you have been trying to um, – to take a, a kind of a rear view in terms of this, I, I, I don't generally buy into the narrative that Israel's an apartheid state because that, you know, labeling things is just kind of sloppy in, uh, from my perspective. It uh, doesn't allow you the opportunity to, to actually inject nuance into, uh, into a conversation. And the fascinating thing for me uh, are, you know, the diplomatic back channels that you've, uh, uh, that you've touched on to some extent, uh, you know, those back channels between Israel and Russia are very strong and they always have been. And, uh, and, and the fact is that, uh, Putin actually has a direct line to Netanyahu on, on his desk. And, uh, it's one of the few people in the world that he will actually, uh, take a call from. At the same time, you've got this very strong relationship now between Russia and Iran. You've got, you know, China throwing its, uh, its hat into the ring as well. And at the same time, you've got the Biden administration very anxious to have a regime change in, uh, uh, in Israel. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mess for me, but uh, I suppose what I'm, what I'm trying, what I'm looking for is a, is a sign of hope that, you know, there can actually be some sort of, um, well, an end to the bombing would be nice. You know, I'd, I'd really like to see an end to the rockets flying, you know, between both territories and someone actually now trying to step in and actually trying to broker a peace deal. And I think with the uh, U.S. actually having a waning star, I'm hopeful that's going to happen, but I'm not seeing a pathway to getting there. Gareth, you uh, you have that wry <laughs> smile on your face, <laughs> the Netanyahu who fan. Would, <laughs> who, would, who would it be? Who, who would referee this if not the United States? I mean, clearly... You know, the Palestinians have had their problems with the United States in the past. Look, if, if, if China can bring the Iranians and the Saudis together, my word. Yeah, that's quite an achievement. Mm. Well, and if you look at the fact that more and more of all of those countries <coughs> talk about the back channels, the diplomatic back channels, talking about like their Abraham Accords and the fact that more and more of them are signing up onto <laughs> that, you, you then do quite honestly have a shifting power in that region that is moving towards a a working with each other. And then, you know, just to bring it back home to South Africa, where we have a minister who's very emotional about what's happening over there and failing to see uh, and read the tea leaves, to use your, your earlier analogy, uh, Canton, and failing to read the tea leaves and therefore closing off for a country like ours that has so many problems and opportunity to reach out and actually win from solutions that live in that region. I mean, we could learn a lot from Israel, not just in terms of what they've been able to do with their country and the country that they've built in the middle of the desert, but also from their technology, from their agriculture and people who listen to the show know that, you know, I, I personally have had an experience where we've been able to bring technology that's changed the lives of people here in this country. And here we have a very emotional and small minded minister, in my view, who is looking at. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is that she's looking at that makes her make the decisions and make the sounds that she makes. Well, it's all, it's all binary to so many people in the ANC. It's either are you our friend or are you not our friend? Were you our friend in the past or are you still our friend? It's, it's kind of this legacy stuff, which doesn't seem to compute with a, a world that is constantly changing. I'm curious about the question that Canton asked, who the next 
adjudicator should be. And, and this leads us on to an interesting discussion, which I think, Ruff, you can, you can join in on because you're also watching the world and, and how international politics are changing. This BRICS thing seems to be the talk of the town at the moment. Um, we see, we see kind of a, an effeteness in the Biden regime in terms of trying to, uh, to tame what is clearly going to become an alternative. How do you feel about BRICS? How do you feel about this new coalition and the fact that it may, uh, silently and, and in a, in a very, um, in a very direct way, um, start harming American interests in inverted commas, as opposed to the interests of these countries themselves. It's already happening. You know, I mean, the BRICS, the BRICS country is, you know, China now is uh, trading with Russia. They're moving away from the dollars. You know, I mean, like the other day, I read something about Malaysia and China, you know, uh, trading in their own currencies. The whole BRICS, you know, the BRICS coalition and moving away from the de-dollarization, it's going to affect America big time. You know, that, that alone is, is just one indication. And now you've got other countries like Saudi Arabia want to join BRICS. UAE wants to join BRICS. You know, so you have a multipolar world emerging from a unipolar American-dominated world, which is good for the whole world. In, in yeah. All right, Ruff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go because your connection is breaking up quite badly. Um, and, and thank you for, for being on the show this morning. We will check in with you again soon. Appreciate your contribution. And, of course, people can find out more. Where can we get hold of you? Where you got hold of me now. <laughs> <laughs> this is your ad break. <laughs> there's no social media tag that we can put on. He doesn't tweet. There's a there's a no. website. We'll put it out. There's a website. Yeah, I have a website. And, uh, okay, I've just uh, published my new book, which is called Music Has No Boundaries. It's a right. story about uh, you know what we did. We tried to bring the South African radio experience, the 72 experience, what 72 did in South Africa to this part of the world. It was an amazing experience, and and the experiment that worked for a while, and and we got closed down. Some of us went to prison, right? And the whole story is told for the very first time. And from that story comes another story, the first woman radio station in the Arab world, Radio Nisa FM. And it's a story about two radio stations. Sorry, in the Rob, world. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's getting okay. very, very <laughs> The connection is breaking up, but we will. Okay. Music Has No Boundaries is the, the book by Raf Gangat. He uh, will give us the details and we'll put it up on the website. And you can obviously get it over there. Um, but I do want to have us continue this conversation, if you don't mind, Canton and Pumi, because I, d- I do not think we've completely extinguished the uh, the subject of of what's going on with this BRICS move. And there have been new developments. I mean, the the U.S. Central Bank, the U.S. Federal Reserve, as they call themselves, has um, started rolling out, as they promised they would in April of 2023. They said they would start to um, play with the idea of a central digital currency. How do we feel about that, Canton? We could probably devote an entire show talking about this stuff, Gareth, because it's really interesting. Okay, so let, let, let me just kind of break down where my thought process is on this right now. Okay, to a large extent, the reason why the U.S. has been able to maintain the outrageous trade deficits that they have. And, and right now, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the, the balance of trade, the U.S. is going to top a uh, top, um, trillion dollars. In yep. uh, in the next year, they 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 hit nine hundred and eighty something um, billion um, yeah, in this year. And you see, the only way you can keep doing that as uh, as a country is if you do what the U.S. has had the ability to do, which is to print um, an unlimited number of U.S. dollars. Now, what what's been happening, and it's directly as a result of Biden's stupidity of sanctioning Russia that you've had almost every country in the world saying, well, if the U.S. can actually take my money at any given stage, I really don't want to be keeping my fortunes with the U.S. as a reserve currency. And so they've been moving to gold. You know, we we know already that, you know, Russia has been buying a massive amount of gold. China, in addition to being one of the biggest gold producers in the world, has been a net importer of gold. Uh, India has surreptitiously bought up most of the world's silver market over the mm-hmm. past uh, uh, 
uh, four or five years. And you've now got the uh, the entry of the likes of the Saudis. Um, no doubt Venezuela is going to be part of that mix as well. Um, you've now got Brazil coming into it uh, as well. And all of them are bringing their own resources uh, to bear right. at, at the same we- time. What yeah. are we bring? What are we bringing if we're the S in bricks? Because <laughs> we have very well, small S. No, no, actually, because Rob, Rob said Saudi Arabia might join. I'm, I'm thinking they'll just take our S and we'll just be thrown out. <laughs> no, I, I think people actually forget that. Um, if, if, if you look at a lot of the materials that uh, the resources that are actually necessary in the world right now, and you know, I've touched on this when, when, when people say we shouldn't piss off the U.S. because you know, they're going to cut trade ties with us. No, actually, there's a lot of materials where the U.S. is fundamentally dependent on having us there. Um, uranium being a case in point, if not for the fact that uh, um, uh, we're able to be a regular supplier of uranium, um, the U.S. would be forced to deal with Russia. Now, my view is that, you know, we should actually be um, uh, putting a stranglehold on our uranium exports. We should be beneficiating our uranium exports Instead of shipping it off to Westinghouse in are, uh, in the U.S. Still, to get them to process it, are we still actively mining uranium in any meaningful way in South Africa? Well, remember that uranium in in the South African context has always been a byproduct of gold mining. Mm. Okay, which so is we, why I keep telling people, you know, don't 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 build houses on mine dumps because you know they they're radioactive. So, right. but but my point is that. We've had the resources all the time. So, you know, it's uranium, it's, uh, it's chrome. You know, our coal reserves are still absolutely massive. And you can see that by the hundreds upon hundreds of trucks that are lined up to get into Richards Bay and just load up onto, uh, onto ships. So we've still got a massive amount of resources that we can bring to bear. And the idea of actually using those resources to shore up the value of the currency, you know, is going to give us a, a real stake in BRICS. And I, I think that almost every country right now that's coming in there, but look, let's just step back to the US dollar scenario because that becomes the crucial bit. What it means is that in, in the old days, people were very happy to hold US dollars because, you know, it meant that they could actually, they would buy oil, for example, in US dollars. And they, it was the main reason for holding onto the US dollars. And, and of course, they could then purchase stuff directly from the U.S. as well. But when you no longer have a need to hold U.S. dollars and you start offloading your dollars, those dollars then flow back into the U.S. And when those dollars yeah. flow back into the U.S., they've really got nowhere to go. So you're doubling the money supply uh, in the U.S. Because remember, Biden printed $4 trillion during his time. Okay, so he, he effectively doubled uh, the, the, the money supply during his term. Now, if you have that flowing back in, into the U.S., okay, if your economy is uh, is worth X number of dollars and you double the number of dollars in circulation, then that means yeah. that you're halving the value of the dollar in real terms, which is why inflation in the U.S. has been, you know, ab- absolutely going through the roof. So, Let me ask you about that. Yeah. So, hold on, because it almost sounds, and a, con- a conspiracy theorist might say, that that is – Sabotage. Why, why would the U.S. government allow this to happen? Because they, is it because they didn't see the consequences of these decisions? What's now, the Gareth, you, you, you're asking exactly the right question because this is where my thought process has been going. Okay. Because what if the entire process of de-dollarization, the sabotaging of the, of the greenback has actually been part of an overall plan by the U.S. deep state to suddenly rip out the dollar and replace it with this um, uh, federal digital currency that effectively is going to be able to track the movements of every individual uh, within the United States. Okay, so you suddenly have a point at which all of the dollars that are in circulation effectively become valueless because the only way you can get it back into circulation is by legally declaring them and putting them uh, on the table. Now, Modi did something very similar um, when India. he came into power in India. You might yeah. remember that what he did was he immediately outlawed all notes that had been printed 
um, before his tenure. And he mm-hmm. said, um, you have a limited period in which you can bring back this money and uh, deposit it into your bank accounts. Otherwise, it's going to become worthless after a particular date. There were riots and so forth that actually took place at the time. But what it meant was that a lot of printed money that people were holding as cash hoards suddenly got ripped out of circulation kind of almost um, overnight. It just became uh, worthless pieces of paper. And if you look at all of the talk that's been uh, going on right now in the U.S., particularly from the likes of Yellen and um, other people in the Biden administration of moving towards this uh, centralized uh, digital currency, it does effectively become a way that the U.S. can perform this great reset that they've been talking about, okay, where, you know, uh, you'll, you'll have no wealth and you'll be happy with it. <laughs> but part of the reason why the great reset that the U.S. has been talking about, and it's also the reason why we wake up this morning and the former finance minister of Greece, he of the cent- the center of Grexit, also says, you know, he wishes they could have had China as a banker too, you know, because the U.S. for many, many years has weaponized their dollar. So whether it is their dollar or it is a central digital currency, the the point is that the world is losing faith in what the U.S. does and says and how that keeps the peace uh, around the world. You know, just talking of the digital currencies, I mean, a similar thing is what happened in Nigeria just ahead of the elections. You know, they tried to rip out all of the, the money in circulation and replace it with the digital currency because notoriously, you know, Nigerians buy their elections, Nigerian politicians buy the ballot, you know. So it's, it, look, I think one of the things that when I look at what's happening. And as you know, I like to bring it all back home to South Africa is all of those things, all our rich reserves, all of the platinum and the gold and the coal that we have really doesn't give us much of a bargaining power. If our politicians are self-serving and stupid, which is what we have to deal with at the moment, you know, they, they, they do not, see the bigger picture of the politics at play and are emotional about a lot of the decisions that they are making. And that, unfortunately, even with our reserves, puts us in a bad position. All right. Thank you, Pumi. Thank you, Canton. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined us this morning on the Burning Platform and to Raf Ganga, to our guest from earlier. Uh, we will catch up again next week, Thursday, for some more of The Burning Platform. And don't forget, tonight we have Uncancelled with uh, Professor Bakeng, which is going to be interesting. Pumi's going to be Gareth, joining me. Gareth, you're, you're wrapping up a couple of minutes early, so uh, let, let me just get... Uh, um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> one more thing to say. No, I, I want to get one. No, guys, I just want to humbly and unreservedly apologize to Panyaza Lusufi for calling him a racist bastard. <laughs> I have no idea whether his parents are married. I misspoke, and I apologize (laughs) unreservedly. (laughs) All right, leaving us on a clangor. I love it. Thank you. All right, there we go. That is none other than Canton Pillay. And you can find all of us on social media. If you want to send us an email, send it to uh, contact at cliffcentral.com. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Have an awesome, awesome day, everybody. Bye-bye.